Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. You are listening to The Bird Calls. For more breakdowns on the Pelicans, including interviews with coaches, journalists, and opposing experts, go to iTunes, search The Bird Calls, and subscribe today. All right, what's up, Pels fans? We are back with another episode of The Bird Calls. I'm your host, Preston Ellis. First, we're going to recap game one before getting to game two and some of your questions. Joining us today, of course, is our editor-in-chief, a very grumpy Mr. Ali Cosell. How are you doing today, sir? Well, you've been, you left me hanging. I mean, I fuck. <laughs> and then you get here 10 minutes late and you tell me, oh, I told Grub for 15. I didn't tell you. <laughs> How do you think I'm going to feel? <laughs> And we also have with us Crescent City Sports, Mr. David Grubb, who did get the correct time for me, I'll have you know. How are you doing, David? Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time. But the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Doing very well. I was on time. (laughs) <laughs> so I wasn't, I'm not worried about anything. <laughs> All right. You guys can follow them at Ali Cosell and at DM Grubb, as well as at Crescent City Sports. Both these guys have terrific articles up on their respective websites today. Ali, this was our worst case scenario. Golden State came out in game one and they just kind of took care of the Pelicans. They did it in all the familiar ways that Golden State does. Blistering pace, suffocating defense, elite shooting, and uh, a great performance from Draymond Green, who had been struggling lately. But Saturday, he led the, uh, the Warriors to a 25 to 2 run. He had a triple double in the first half. It was a 37 to 9 overall run in the last 10 minutes of what was a tie game at the 10 minute mark of the second quarter. There were offensive rebounds, a 19 rebound differential overall, turnovers, a 23 to 2 free throw disparity late in the second quarter, including getting into the penalty in the opening four minutes of both the second and third quarter. I think it was two and a half minutes in the third quarter. There were 10 blocks to just three. These are some of the very many culprits in this loss. Ali, is there anything positive to take from? the Pelicans performance yeah you just look at like the first 13 minutes and you threw out the rest honestly uh because the Pelicans up to that point had played even with uh the Warriors you know the score was tied 39 39 and you know what they weren't playing their best brand of basketball 
the Warriors had been to the line a lot more times at that point. I think they had, what, like 10, 11 more free throws uh, through the first 13 minutes. Then, of course, they had Clay Thompson beating him on a couple backdoor cuts. They weren't able to slow down Durant much at all. Uh, there, there was just a lot of things, you know. And for them to be tied after 13 minutes, honestly, I thought it was kind of promising. Because outside of each one more, uh, well, granted, Anthony Davis got off to a really good start, too. He was, what, 5 of 7 in the first quarter. But each one more was really the only hot shooting guard from the outside. That's where everybody else was kind of struggling. So, I don't know. I think that you look at the first 13 minutes and you just look at that. Because afterwards, everybody knows what happened, Preston. The Pelicans pretty much got punched in the mouth. And they kind of punched themselves in the mouth, too, with all their turnovers, poor decision-making. There was just no focus. I think I saw David Crubb, our boy here, talking about every minute or so tweeting out, oh, there, there, there's another defensive breakdown. I mean, just left and right. It was a struggle city after that. So you don't want to pay too much attention to that because the team knows what went wrong and they know how to correct that. Yeah, there just weren't enough actions on the offensive side of the ball. Off-screen defense, of course, was a weakness in this one. Uh, the Warriors moving away from the ball like we knew that they would, but it resulted in a lot of easy points in the second quarter. Uh, cutting and and backdoor screens to Clay Thompson, who would think had like 27 on the night or so. Uh, of course, we're going to talk about Draymond Green as well. One bright spot that I wanted to mention before we get to, to David Grubb, Drew Holiday's offense against the second team, uh, he, he was pretty quiet in the opening eight minutes, but as soon as Anthony Davis went to the bench, had seven consecutive points at one point and looked really comfortable before the second quarter started. David, was there anything else positive you'd like to take away from this performance? Um, I think... The most positive thing is is the the composure of the Pelicans that it even when the game get out of hand, you didn't see that you know that they were um, getting desperate. You know you didn't see any hard fouls just out of desperation. You didn't see them you know uh, chucking uh, shots that they normally wouldn't take. It was just a, they they knew it was a bad night. Uh, they kind of just resigned themselves to the fact that hey you know at at some point we're not coming back in this. And I think mentally they were prepared to move on. Uh, they talked honestly about about what their shortcomings were. So I really liked that me- mentally it didn't seem like they were phased by the loss. They understood that you don't want to perform that way, but they still feel as if they can compete with the Warriors. Now, we'll find out, obviously, over the next few games if that's true. But they weren't shaken. And, th- and that's an important thing for this group. Now, Ali, uh, we we all knew that the Golden State Warriors in the playoffs were capable of uh, flipping the switch, so to speak. I thought that they had, that they had played to a rate in the past six weeks that that it might take them a game or two, specifically with Steph Curry out of the lineup and with Quinn Cook potentially starting. But with that being said, Steve Kerr kind of threw a fastball. There was a game at Cat and Mouse where it looked like for the preceding four days that Steph Curry was definitely going to be a go. He had been practicing up until a week before this game and full court five on five uh, practice three days before the game. Uh, he looked good in shoot around interviews. He he told everybody that he wanted to go. And then an hour before the matchup, not only is it announced that he is not playing and will be limited in game two, but instead of going with the all too similar Quinn Cook in the starting lineup, he decides to throw Swaggy P in there. What did you think of that change, Ollie? Well, first of all, hats off to him for making the Pelicans waste. I don't know how many hours of game planning for Steph Curry to play. Um, I, I watched Richard Jefferson. I didn't learn about this until today, but Richard Jefferson on NBA Jump, I think it was last week on Friday, called that Steve Kerr would not play uh, Steph Curry in game one. It was just simply kind of a ruse. Um, you, you, you know, you're not going to put your franchise player out there when he had only had a couple practices under his belt. And he kind of saw right through all this. And all of us were expecting, of course, him to play. So 
Uh, hats off to Steve Kerr because I don't, like I said, who knows how many hours a Pelican spent on uh, game planning for Steph, but suddenly you, you switch gears and you've got Nick Young. Because I'm sure plan B was probably, okay, Steph doesn't play, they'll probably start what? Even uh, JaVale McGee or uh, Looney at center, but they didn't go that route. They almost went to like a plan C where they had another set, uh, shooter out there alongside Kevin Durant and uh, Clay Thompson, but it wasn't a guy nobody expected. So I thought it was a great curveball, great, you know, I, I mean, I don't know, strategy, I don't know, whatever you want to call it by Steph, Steve, Steve Kerr, but I think I think it did its mark because I'll tell you what, the Pelicans, although they were able to hang with the, the uh, Warriors through the first 13 minutes, I thought that them putting Kevin Durant on Drew Holiday and then there were a few other matchups really, really um, kind of screwed up the Pelicans' whole offensive design. And defensively, I'm not quite sure what the Pelicans did worked out either. So in essence, I mean, game one totally – when you're just grading coaching staffs went to uh, the Warriors, you know, they, they came into the game before the game, then they came in the game with a, a game plan that nobody could kind of figure out. And so, I mean, hats off to them, but I don't think you can't expect that to happen again. Obviously they're, they're now ready. And of course, Steve Kerr, I think you just mentioned person that he may be limited. I had just read earlier that he's not going to be limited in any way for game two. There's no minutes restriction. So, you know, now there's not going to be any more surprises at least. Wow, David, uh, to continue on this line of thought that that Ali has uh, informed us of, Steph Curry not being limited, uh, this this was plan A. This was what the Pelicans spent so much time uh, preparing them so, uh, themselves for, Steph Curry. And as soon as it was announced that he was not starting, Alvin Gentry simply stated that they were going to go to their plan B. Only a plan B probably uh, consisted of Quinn Cook in that starting lineup, or like Ali mentioned, some form of JaVale McGee or Zaza Pachulia. Only they went to Swaggy P, and we saw in the first and second quarter, the Pelicans go at him not nearly enough, in my opinion. I think they just went uh, after him. I think Ali even had the numbers on this three or four times, and it resulted in baskets, uh, I think all three or four of the times. But the Pelicans just didn't seem to take advantage of the weak spot that was on the floor at that point in time. And like he said, the Golden State wins the first advantage in terms of coaching. Did you think the Pelicans were properly prepared for what they saw initially in game one? No, I was surprised, especially on the offensive end more than the defensive end early, because it seemed as if offensively they thought they could do the exact same things they did, they ran against Portland. Um, a lot of, you know, looking for AD for, you know, lobs. Um, and each one, they were running similar actions for him that they had run earlier in the season, which got him some nice cuts uh, to the basket. And he made some threes. Like I said, early on in the first quarter, there was a pretty balanced attack. But I think that's what Golden State wanted. Um, it seemed to me as if offensively, Golden State wanted the Pelicans to to feel like, they were comfortable. And then once things changed in the lineups that the Warriors started placing uh, on the court uh, were developing defensively, the Pelicans really didn't have a counter. Uh, and, and that became an issue along with the turnovers, along with the lack of rebounding. I mean, they just allowed, you know, Golden State to, to really dominate the, the offensive boards. So it felt like not that they weren't prepared, but just that they prepared improperly. Like it's clear that they they had worked on things, but they just worked on the wrong thing. So I don't want to say that the coaching staff wasn't doing um, its job. It just felt like they just anticipated a different game. Ali, offensively in the first quarter, the Pelicans came out hot. Like you said, 34 points. Anthony Davis was playing well. Drew Holiday carved up the second unit. And then in the second quarter, 
just 21 points. The third quarter, just 19 points. Uh, the, the Warriors scored 41 points in the second quarter, but in the first quarter, they also scored 35 points. So like David said, it was the offense that really started struggling. And of course, you can you can add free throw disparity. Maybe that was disheartening for them. There's uh, one famous play, I think the opening minutes of the game, where Rajon Rado has a full court lob and Draymond Green basically tackles Anthony Davis, resulting in a turnover and, of course, no whistle. Do you think that the Pelicans got tight in this game? Or do you think, like David said, that just the the consistent switching, Andre Iguodala, uh, Draymond Green, Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson, these guys were all over the floor. It didn't matter who they were guarding. They were shutting pretty much everybody down. Alvin Gentry said at one point that, that the missed shots almost served as turnovers because they put the Warriors out in transition and they were just they were just bad looks consistently. These guys just weren't getting the shots they were used to getting. And so the shots that they typically would make were not falling in. How much of that do you attribute to Golden State's game plan? And how much do you attribute to the Pelicans just getting tight? I don't think the Pelicans were tight at all. I just, like David said, they just kind of probably game plan for the wrong thing. And I, I, I keep harping on it, but Drew Holiday being guarded by Kevin Durant, I thought was absolutely huge early in the game. Now I know that he kind of got off in that towards the end of the first quarter, as you mentioned for seven straight points, but before that he tried a couple of drives on uh, Kevin Durant got nowhere. One shot was just cleanly rejected right at the rim. Then you could tell he was kind of, you know, um, just not on his game. He's kind of upset by what was going on because then he airballed a three really badly. So you could tell that he was already taken out. And for a guy that had averaged about 28 points in the Portland series to come out completely flat and not be uh, any kind of, uh, you know, positive on the offensive end for the Pelicans really, really hurt. It puts suddenly all that pressure on Anthony Davis and H1 Moore, who's got off to a hot start. But once they both cooled, then suddenly the collapse happened. And we saw that. And, I don't know. I think it was honestly just a game of matchups and the Pelicans almost got too tricky for me. That's where David touched on what happened in the offensive end. I'm not quite sure I agreed with everything they did defensively. I don't know if you guys noticed, but AD started out on Andre Iguodala and uh, Drew yeah. Holiday started out on Draymond Green. And I, and you, you know why? Because they were kind of going to play that safety role where they wouldn't have to stay on those guys, um, you know, all the way up to the three-point line and give a lot of help to, you know, Clay Thompson, um, uh, and uh, Kevin Durant and whoever else, Nick Young, whenever they're shooting a three or making a drive or anything like that. So they'd be free to go ahead and uh, possibly maybe double team, force a turnover or something like that. But it never transpired. And I thought that really blew up in uh, especially Drew Holiday's case in his face because Draymond Green got off to a great start. And he, he almost had, I think, a triple double at halftime. So I, I'm hoping that the Pelicans kind of are going to go away from that because Drew's a great lockdown defender. So why not go ahead and stick him on Clay Thompson uh, in the next game? Because I'll tell you what, he all the all these guys didn't really get to good sh- you know shooting starts. I think when I checked, the Warriors start off two of eight from three. Both Durant and uh, Thompson weren't hitting you know very early. But you know by the time they kind of got in the groove into the rhythm, when you're guarded by each one more by Rajon Rondo by these smaller guys, you're eventually going to find that rhythm. And boy, did they ever in that second half. So. It's just really a game of matchups, Preston, and I'm just hoping that Pelicans do make those adjustments, the coaching staff, that is, makes the right adjustments, and I think they will. And they'll be a lot better off in game two, and we'll all see that. 
David, one of our principal concerns coming into this matchup was the Pelicans bench, whether they would play better. Of course, our big four, Nicole Meritich, Rajon Rondo, Drew Holiday, and Anthony Davis, we knew what they were going to bring to the table. But the guys we were kind of concerned about coming into this one, Ian Clark, Salomon Hill, Darius Miller, Czech Diallo, didn't particularly play very well against Portland, and we didn't really know what to expect from them. Now we kind of do, specifically Salomon Hill, although Ian Clark in just 28 minutes, negative 23 on the night, he shot just three of 10. We were expecting uh, quite a lift from him facing his former team. And we didn't necessarily get it. Darius Miller was quiet on the night, just seven shots, made just three of them. Solomon Hill, 17 minutes, negative 11 on the night. And not only is he not bringing the defense that we particularly expected, even on the offensive end, we're not really expecting anything from him at this point. And yet he's making critical errors instead of just shooting at the three-point line and, and, and just making the Pelicans play four on five. I saw him too often in the paint, drawing in his defender to help defend on guys like Anthony Davis and Drew Holiday when he could just, I don't know, buy them a couple more feet by sitting out at the three-point line. And in, in stark contrast, the Warriors, Kavon Looney played much better than I expected him to play. He was a positive 34 net rating in just 24 minutes and played pretty great defense on Anthony Davis all night. What did you take away from the two bench units? Well, you know, we talked about that before the series, that depth was going to be tested uh, for the Pelicans. And when they can have, you know, guys like Sean Livingston, who we, of course, know uh, can score in transition and can shoot the mid-range and is a very solid defender and has has tremendous length at the two or the three position compared to the Pelicans. And then, of course, Quinn Cook had a good game, you know, coming off the bench as well. And David West knows everything. You know, there's nothing you can do that he hasn't seen at this point, even if his physical skills don't line up the way that they used to. So, Warriors know what they're going to get from their bench on a night-to-night basis. The Pelicans do not. It's an X factor. And that in this series can't be the case. They have to get something dependable from their bench every night. I think they probably have to get 25 points total from the bench on a night-to-night basis. The interesting thing is, of course, where does that come from? So obviously you need Ian Clark. If he's going to get 10 shots, then he has to score you know, better. He has to be more efficient. He can't uh, put his, his team in a position to where his shots – he did take some of those bad shots that Alvin Gentry was talking about. And then, of course, with Solomon Hill, the issue is, does he even belong on the floor at this point? Because his spacing issues, his recognition issues, and then just the basic sense of when he gets the ball – he immediately is looking to get rid of it. So if you're not a threat from outside, which he has not been, and you can't get to the basket, and he's not rebounding particularly well either, where else are you going to give those minutes to? Um, I, I just don't know. And they, and even if you bring in a check Diallo, you worry about his, his defense. You worry about him getting caught up in more foul trouble for a team that in game one got in a lot of foul trouble. Um, so it's there's no one really that you turn to in that second unit and you feel 100% comfortable with right now. Ali, the questions that we've gotten all in relation to Solomon Hill. Mm-hmm. Is Solomon truly unplayable? Is Gentry pay- paying the price now for not developing Diallo further during the regular season? Then should we continue to give Solomon Hill quality minutes? Who would you put in instead of him? Should Jordan Crawford get Hill minutes? These questions by Waka Waka Wakanda, Ike Burns, and M. Tooman. We the, the Pelicans have a big problem in Solomon Hill right now, and the problem isn't even necessarily Solomon Hill. It's just that there's simply no one else to turn to other than Ian Clark, Darius Miller, and Check Diallo. They're pretty much giving everybody minutes that they can with Emeka Okafer being the only other player available in addition to DeAndre Liggins what can the Pelicans do to get more production from their bench Preston believe it or not I'm going to go with the side of that Solomon Hill is going to have to continue seeing minutes 
because as you just finished off that um, question with, they don't have anybody else. And, you know, I, I rewatched a lot of that first half for, for the piece I wrote. And what, one thing I noticed is that actually Solomon Hill did do a few nice things defensively. He was the only one to honestly use his body well against Kevin Durant, where he for, forced one turnover and then he made him also, I think, uh, go ahead and pass the ball a few other times. Now, I know everybody's going to remember that potential four-point play he had. But where Solo got in a lot of trouble, I felt like, was the fault of the other Pelicans that were on the court. A couple of times, each one more, and um, Ian Clark were burned really badly by Clay Thompson. And at least one of those times, Solomon Hill was asked to be the help defender. Now, as we all know, Solo doesn't have his legs back. So for him to have to stand by the rim and try and, you know, defend it, he's, he's not able to get up. He's not able to uh, kind of dissuade the opponent coming at him. And, of course, we saw Clay Thompson get an and one opportunity. And there was something else that happened, something similarly. So, honestly, it wasn't all on Solomon Hill's fault. Now, offensively, yeah, he, he's been kind of a train wreck most of the time. But defensively, I thought he did at least a decent job half the time on Durant. And honestly, outside of Nico, who honestly also did a decent job, where I think Durant scored just four baskets out of 12 attempts on Nico. I think that's the key for the Pelicans. They've got to keep just single coverage on Durant because, look, you start doubling the guy, and all of a sudden you're going to leave, what, the Splash Brothers open, or you're going to have a smart veteran like David just alluded to, David West, making timely cuts for easy lands. No, no, you have to pretty much cover these guys, these Warriors, single coverage, and the best bet with Durant is just having length out there. I thought Nico honestly did a decent job, and Solo, again, had some mistakes, just like Nico did. But you know what? They offered the best bet as to where at least half the time, or maybe, say, 30% of the time, Durant isn't going to score. And you know what? You've got kind of got to take that. So I'm on Solomon Hill's side, actually. I'm hoping that somehow the coaching staff can look at this film way better than I can and kind of see what they can do to put him in even better positions to succeed because they don't have anybody. You can't suddenly turn to Diallo now. And, of course, everybody else on the bench, you know, I mean, Liggins, he's, he's a fine defender, but he's a lot smaller. He's not used to any kind of big minutes, especially in big-time situations. And, you know, there's nobody else worthy of, of uh, calling their number for defense on the bench. So, no, they've got a ride-or-die with solo, guys. David, as, as well as the Warriors played in this one, the Pelicans managed five more shots than them, and the Warriors just, just made two more buckets than the Pelicans all night. The two definitive advantages in this one were rebounds. They led by 19 and foul shootings. I think on the night it was something like uh, 32 to 11. Of course, it was 23 to 2 at one point. If the Pelicans simply box out, and uh, we have to expect the free throw disparity is not going to be this wide in game two, are they in this ball game? Well, I think the free throws will, will close that gap, yes. Um, but the Pelicans do have to be more aggressive um, in going to the basket. And I think the Warriors, even while they were missing shots early, established themselves as the aggressor going to the rim. Now, we can, th- there are some missed calls, and, and there are some times where you say the Pelicans should have gotten one here and there. But when you have a discrepancy like that, it really was the Pelicans were taking shots in a lot of occasions, especially once they fell behind, that don't lend themselves to getting you to the free throw line. So if the game's tighter, I think the free throw numbers will get tighter. Now, the, the part about simply boxing out, that's been an issue all season um, on the offensive glass. And I think because, again, the Warriors have the length that they have, they have the active bodies that they have, um, it's going to be an issue. And the Pelicans were able to mitigate that a lot during the season and, and during the first round of the playoffs with their pace. But the Warriors, even though Klay Thompson said, wow, they do play fast, yeah, but the Warriors are still equipped to run with the Pelicans. 
So they, the Pelicans have to figure out how to do what they do well while not allowing the Warriors to take advantage of that. And that's a really difficult adjustment to make on when you have to beat somebody now four times in six games. Uh, and, you know, the difficulty for the Pelicans will be in, um, do they go back to gang rebounding, sending four guys to the glass? And if that's the case, do you get back in transition quickly enough on defense? And we know that they've had some difficulty switching ends um, with some of the, especially with the second unit. So, you know, it becomes really incumbent that they get better shots. Uh, it doesn't mean that the pace has to slow down. It just means, are you getting the shots with, for guys in the right spot? Are you getting Nico layups? And he didn't get that in the first half. And I think that helps when you're offensive rebounding. Are you getting AD shots in the paint? And we saw his first couple of shots were jumpers and he had a couple of lobs, but then he really wasn't getting his shots within five to seven feet where he dominates. So the Pelicans are going to have to work on that part to make the rebounding not such an issue. But defensively, they also have to make sure, like Ali said, you've got to stay at home on the guy that you have and, and not leave these giant lanes for both rebounding and for guys to get clean looks. Um, and, and that's what the Warriors had too many of in the first game. Yeah, definitely. Ali, uh, in addition to that, uh, we, we saw the Warriors uh, with four guys back getting every rebound. It resulted in 44 defensive rebounds for them to go along with their 13 offensive rebounds. What adjustment can the Pelicans make? Obviously, the Warriors play the exact same style as the Pelicans. They just have a bit more size, and we saw the Pelicans struggle with that all night long. What adjustments can the Pelicans make? Do you think they just still play their game and they just attack the glass a little bit harder, bridging this gap? Because if you look away from the glass and from free throws, the Pelicans played well in nearly every other respect. Only 12 turnovers on the night. They still created seven steals. Uh, they're going to have a difficult time defending the Warriors, but that was something we knew coming into this. We expected the Warriors to score a lot of points it's just can the pelicans keep pace how would you attack the the offensive and defensive glass ali and do you see any personnel changes being made yeah david just touched on it It always comes down to the shots you take on offense that you know dictates everything else that happens it's honestly like a game of dominoes where all of a sudden you've got a shot that goes up and whether you're in good position for offensive rebounding if you're in good position for transition defense and the pelicans were not uh anytime it seemed like they drove to the rim. I remember like each one more drew Holiday when they did that early in the first quarter or midway through the first quarter, whenever that was, they were stuffed or they drove in a double team. Same thing with AD. He tried a couple moves and he lost the ball and uh, there was no fouls called that. That's where I kind of got irked by the personal foul situation, by the way, because there were some, you know, there wasn't an overwhelming amount of contact, but a lot of times there was kind of some touches as to where honestly, the Warriors kind of got all those calls on the other end. So I just had to mention that because you're right. The, the uh, as David said on social media, that that was definitely not the reason the Pelicans lost. Far from it. But I just wanted to clear that up for some people who are still harping about the difference in free throws. Honestly, the uh, Warriors were just a more aggressive team throughout, and it showed. The Pelicans settled. David's just said it. AD settled for too many jumpers that I, I just don't feel comfortable with. He has to be the one that attacks that lane hard. Now I know he got a couple of lob dunks, but if it's not a lob dunk. He's got to somehow still find his way in there, either post up a guy that's smaller than him or just go ahead and crash that offensive glass. Uh, and he didn't do any of that, I thought. Um, and he only tried a couple of drives, and like I said, he turned it over. Next, you've got Drew Holiday, who, like I said, he's they've got to figure out a way to get him open because if he's going to go ahead and attack, he can't really attack Kevin Durant because Durant gives him about four or five feet right of airspace. So he's never going to get by Durant. 
And of course, Durant staying in, in front of him, he's able to, with not only his height, but his incredible wingspan, he's going to be able to um, um, deflect, if not at least bother the heck out of Holiday on all of his shot attempts, no matter where he shoots him from. So they've got to get him going off of some screens, getting some, I don't know, backdoor cuts, get him going like that to get him free up from Durant. Because if I'm Steve Kerr, I'm keeping Durant on Holiday um, on him at, at all times because it works so well in game one. And of course, Nico, you've got to get Nico going with some backdoor cuts. Um, basically, Preston, the offense just didn't get their shots that they want to. They weren't shooting those easy three looks or getting inside the paint for a lot of easy dimes where I know each one more had a couple cuts, but he was about the only guy throughout the game. I felt like that was able to get in behind the seam. And, and guess why? Because he had Nick Young on him half the time. And the Pelicans have got to do that. They, as, as the Warriors, the way they attack the Pelicans, um, through their weak links on defense, the Pelicans have got to do the same. When, when Nick Young plays 21 minutes and the Pelicans only end up with three shot attempts against a guy, that's crazy. It's got to be a thousand times higher than that. So, like I said, it comes down to a lot of adjustments, but the Pelicans, you know, they can make a bunch of these pressing. And it's going to start off with, as you just asked me about on offense, just taking better shots. They've got to get inside that lane because that's their bread and butter. We've seen it all year, points in the paint. And if they don't score from there, they're not going to score from anywhere else. Did yeah, not? I mean, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, I just want to piggyback on that because, you know, the Pelicans only had 50 points in the paint compared to 48 for the Warriors, and the Warriors hit a lot more jumpers from the outside than the Pelicans did. So that huge advantage that they had enjoyed all season in the paint to for it not to be there just shows how passive they were in a lot of situations and, and how frustrated they were with the Warriors' defense. Yeah, and also with the the officiating, because while the Golden State Warriors had 32 foul shots to 11, the Pelicans actually took four more shots in the restricted area and the paint than the Warriors did. Uh, David, Ali mentioned getting person, other... Say that if you remember, the Pelicans didn't take those good decisive cuts to the rim where they're getting the ball over hands, getting by their defender as to where I felt like, honestly, they were fading away or running in the double teams. You know, there, there's good shots and bad shots in restricted area, and I thought the Pelicans did a really bad job of that. Okay, so not creating enough contact, even though they were in a an area of the floor that typically generates a, a bit more contact. David, uh, Ali just touched upon getting others involved, and I wanted to bring up two specific memories to mind. Of course, Rajon Rondo is trying to get it to guys in their spots, get uh, get these guys going early, get them touches, get them open looks. And on two uh, specific possessions that I'm thinking of, Rajon Rondo got into that restricted area, into that paint uh, within five to eight feet of the basket. He had an open look at the basket in each instance, a, a great opportunity for a runner or to finish at the rim. And instead, he kicked it out in the corner to both Ian Clark and Solomon Hill. I think it might have been on consecutive possessions, but within a three to four minute window in the second quarter. Now, while Rajon Rondo's responsibility is, like Ali said, getting these guys going, getting these guys confident, getting them touches on the road so that they can make big shots later. Do you just have to take the points? Is Rajon Rondo being too generous? Yeah, I think he does have to score in this series. He he has to be a threat knowing that, um, you know, the Warriors can have six, seven, eight guys who can put up double figures on any given night. So, you know, they're not going to allow AD to score 40 a game, and they're not going to allow Drew Holiday to get 30 a game. So other guys are going to have to pick up their games and offensively, and one of those is Rajon Rondo. When he sees opportunities to score, especially in the restricted area, he has to finish those plays. He cannot look for a better shot because there is no better shot than a layup. It's either layup or corner three. That's how we know the NBA works. So if he's got opportunities to score in the lane, 
He needs to go ahead and finish. There will be opportunities to set guys up if they're running their offense efficiently. But he did pass up some very easy looks that that just it seemed like to just to force guys into position to where they had to, to take a shot. And, and then you saw his aggressiveness change. I mean, he took seven shots in the first half, seven or eight of his shots were in the first half, and then he, he, he barely shot um, at all in the second half. So you can't have these wild swings, especially as the team is, 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 you know, falling further behind. He has to be a little bit more in control of the offense than he demonstrated. We know he can do that, and we know he can score when called upon. So it's uh, against this uh, Warriors team, it's vitally important that he get to double figures pretty much every night and try to be in that 12 to 14 point range. Yeah, and he's kind of getting the the Evan Turner, Al Farouk Aminu treatment right now. The Warriors are pretty much just letting Rondo have whatever he wants, giving him plenty of space to hit those jumpers or hit those three-pointers. They didn't go in last night, but shooting 37% against the Blazers, or 39%, excuse me, from three, 49% overall, 37% from three in the regular season. He has to be more aggressive. And to continue on with that, Ali, uh, some some bench questions. Somebody was asking, uh, this is MC Tooman has another question. Explain to me the reasoning in playing Rashawn Rondo without Anthony Davis and the second unit with Hill, uh, no O with Clark, no D it's just a mess of a unit. And this is a, a tricky situation. It's like we touched upon earlier with the bench. Just where do you put guys? You don't have guys coming off the bench who can really help in, in much capacity. With that being said, uh, we know that Rondo has some nice chemistry with Nikola Miritich, but with that being said, do you like a pairing of Drew and Miritich off the bench versus uh, Rajana Miritich and Drew and Anthony Davis? Obviously, Drew can generate offense on his own. He doesn't necessarily need Anthony Davis, even though he had trouble last night. But how would you swing those bench units uh, at the end of the first and early in the second? I'm with you guys. I'm with it. The, whoever asked the question, you've got to have one of Anthony Davis or Drew Holiday on the floor at all times. I know that during the uh, closeout to the regular season, you could sit some of those guys together or at times sit both of those guys together and have Rondo and Meritich out there. Because like you said, they, their chemistry is good. Rondo knows where to find Meritich and Meritich is a great scorer from all over the court. So it worked against most teams, but it's not going to work against these Warriors. In that first minute of the uh, second quarter, uh, we saw what happened as to where they locked us down and they scored a quick five points. Suddenly um, Gentry wisely brought in AD right away. And of course the Pelicans scored the next five and tied it up at 39 before all hell broke loose. So to answer your question, they've got to split up AD and Drew because those two guys are, are, are two key difference makers on both ends of the floor. You can't have both of them sitting together because the Pelicans just aren't as deep as the Warriors. You need to have a go-to on both ends that can make a play at any given time. And when they're both off the floor, suddenly you're asking for perfection from a team that honestly, um, especially the reserves, str- have struggled a lot this year. And honestly, Preston, you, a- you asked me this very early in this pod today, if uh, there was any nerves, and I-, and I forgot, I wanted to mention Ian Clark. I thought he honestly came out and looked like, you know, almost like a deer in headlights because he took some bad shots, missed some rotations defensively, and-, and-, and the shots he took that were open, he even had a jumper from the free throw line where he got past, of course, our favorite uh, liability for the Warriors, Nick Young, wide open jumper. He bricked it long, uh, you know, pretty significantly. And then he had a three on the on the uh, was it on, I think on the right wing, and he missed that one pretty pretty badly too. So Ian Clark, wow, he's got to get it together for the Pelicans to have a chance uh, with the bench unit. But you're right, just to lead those second reserves, either AD or Drew have to be out on the court. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping we see that in game two. 
David, early on in the second quarter, I think about around the six-minute mark, Drew Holiday picked up his fourth foul, and he was uh, joined very soon after by Etwan Moore and Ian Clark. And, of course, uh, that that may potentially have contributed to some backcourt scoring for the Warriors. Uh, how how difficult does playing defense become when you have four fouls early in the second quarter? And we saw that Alvin Gentry did not pull Drew Holiday and Ian Clark, though he did pull Etwan Moore off the floor. Well, I think it's it's always an adjustment, um, especially for a defender like Drew, who is who uses his strength, um, but is gr- is a great positional defender. Um, so I think for Drew, it, it kind of more affected him offensively than it did defensively. Um, he seemed to still play with the same energy, um, but they were all all the Pelicans seemed just off. So that it's it's hard to to judge it based on the quality of everybody's play um, with the foul trouble. Um, I think it affected each, each one more a little bit more. Um, because, you know, he's not a, a great defender. So if he if he's getting into foul trouble, I think that makes it even more difficult for him to do his job. Uh, like I said, I don't think the calls will be the same in game two. Again, in the playoffs, we've always talked about each game being its own. But uh, for a guy like Drew, who is, a you know, as we've talked about all season long and all first-team NBA defender, um, I, I don't think it's as big as an issue as it is for someone like an Etuan Moore. Ali, I got some kudos a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember which game it was, but it was a game in which uh, the free throw disparity had had reached an, its apex. I want to say it was against the Rockets. The Pelicans had something like in the previous two games, uh, a 38-minute span of basketball where they only had two free throw shots. Ever since Boogie went down, it seems like the Pelicans, in in large part, other than game four against the Blazers, are, are not getting the benefit of the whistle. And and we've talked a bit about it. Uh, I think Rajon Rondo said it's because guys don't bitch and moan about calls. And these are nice guys. And and Drew Holiday manages with his body control to lean away from a lot of contact. But but this is the playoffs. The Pelicans are going to need each one of these. Uh, they, they, they can't give any free baskets to the Warriors, so to speak, in this one. What the, can the Pelicans do other than another postgame tirade from Alvin Gentry to, to get more credibility at the stripe? Oh, they're going to have to just look like the more aggressive team out there. Uh, they're going to have to prove it by trying to push the ball even more so. I know there was what, I think in that first quarter, the teams were running at like 110 possession uh, game pace in that first quarter. So that's very fast. But you know what? It didn't result in too many easy baskets. Um, I know they had, I think it was a 7-3 to three fast break advantage after the first. But to answer your question, Pelican, or <laughs> Pelicans, Preston, the Pelicans are not a good free throw um, drawing team simply because they don't get those calls for two reasons. As you just mentioned, they don't get it from the referees because they don't have that respect yet. But also you've got to really look at just the way they play the game. And it, it's true. If you're not an aggressive type who seeks contact, you're just not going to get the benefit of a lot of calls. And, you know, you touch on Drew Hall to kind of shine away from contact. I don't think that's necessarily as true as it is like, say for Etwan Moore, who consistently looks for floaters. You've got Darius Miller who consistently just tries to jump off two feet and never go through people. I mean, Rondo, he's always trying to go up and under instead of, you know, through anybody as well. Because outside really of AD and sometimes even Nico, uh, the Pelicans have no one else that can draw foul. So it, it's honestly kind of a just like a roster flaw you have to live with. And the only way to circumvent that is getting these players to play more aggressively through your style of play by seeking out, you know, the open court, seeking out some mismatches. So as I said, the only way I honestly can see them doing is by honestly just pushing the pace more whether it's off of uh, misses by the Warriors or hopefully turnovers. I think that's going to be crucial. I think that's where the Pelicans honestly did their best work 
in the Warriors this season was in that last regular season matchup where they forced, what was it, guys? I think it was around 17 turnovers, but that led to so many easy scores, baskets, and even got to the rim a lot, got to the free throw line a lot. And so that's honestly the template you want to use. David? Let's head into game two. The Pelicans got punched in the mouth. Uh, no way around it. Uh, right now, they're kind of shaking off the cobwebs, and they're getting ready to get back in there and face Golden State once again. Uh, you, you have to think uh, that they're going to play better in this one. Things that didn't seem to go their way will go their way in game two. With that being said, Steph Curry's back, and uh, the the super force, I think they call him the, the death lineup of of those five guys, Draymond, Iggy, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and Klay Thompson. Uh, they're going to be ready for the Pelicans in game two. Do you give the Pelicans a chance? Yeah, I think they have a chance. I mean, you know, that's what we've said this whole series, that, that they, they're going to fight and they're going to play better. Um, I believe in the staff. I believe in the players. Um, we didn't expect, we don't expect them to win this series. Um, if they get a split, you know, that's a, a huge win for the Pelicans. Um, you know, you'd like to, they've, they've responded to challenges all season. Um, this is a big one. This is the biggest challenge they faced all season. Um, so I, I do think that they will play better. I think adjustments will be made. It, to, to, it just depends on how, how good is Steph Curry coming back. And do the Pelicans overplay uh, Steph? Do they they react to him too much, and, and and in turn lose the other guys? So I think that you know they have to stay home on Clay Thompson, who always shoots well against the Pelicans. They have to make sure that they don't you know like I said uh, go and pay too much attention to Steph Curry, though that's a hard thing to say when the guy's an MVP and maybe the greatest shooter of all time. But you still you can't overcommit your limited resources to any one player, guys have to hold on to their responsibilities and the Pelicans have to come out um, and, and, and reestablish their aggressiveness from the opening tip. Ali, uh, Clay Thompson and Draymond Green were both quoted as saying that Alvin Gentry is going to have something up his sleeve and I'm not the brightest basketball mind, but I didn't see anything particularly unusual on the offensive side of the floor for the Pelicans. With that being said, Steph Curry was pulled an hour before tip. Do you think Alvin Gentry has anything in mind that might present an advantage for the Pelicans offensively with Steph Curry on the court? Yeah. And that's to attack him. Honestly, I had written that uh, in the series preview that, I didn't see Steph Curry making that big of a difference for the Warriors in terms of their scoring output, simply because they've already got a wealth of guys that can put the ball through the hoop. If anything, I felt like a Curry that's kind of rusty, kind of maybe not 100%, would actually be almost beneficial to the Pelicans' chances, simply because he'd, he'd, he'd present that much of a bigger target for whether it's Rajon Rondo attacking him, Drew Holiday, whoever Steph would be matched up on. Because you know what? The Pelicans don't have anybody that uh, Steph Curry can be hit on because each one more, you know, you can run him off some screens and we've seen him score, you know, loads of times over 20 points a game this season when, you know, opponents haven't really respected him out there. So honestly, I'm kind of looking forward to Steph playing simply because guess what? That's what the Pelicans have probably been game planning a lot. I'm sure Ehrman's probably spent God, probably, you know, 72 hours at a minimum of his uh, week, just looking at potential ways to beat these Pelicans. Uh, defensively but as you asked me offensively yeah Preston I mean you've got to take advantage of weak points that's all an offense is you, you do what you're you, you basically use your strengths utilize your strengths something the Pelicans didn't do I mean Drew Holiday and Anthony Davis combined for 32 points after they combined for 60 in that Portland series so you got to get better play better production from the superstars Rajon Rondo as you guys have touched on had a quiet very quiet second half I don't think he even scored a point Maybe he just had a couple of assists. You've got to have him basically dictating being a maestro. 
not settling in. If he is getting all those lanes, all those looks, he's got to take advantage of them. You're right. He's got to go ahead and try and impose his will on the court like he's done so many times, whether or not defenses have given him uh, a lot of space. So there's a lot of adjustments that can be made, but I'm thinking there's going to be a lot more of them done defensively because that's where it starts with this team, guys. When they can get out in the open court, it's usually because of the turnovers or just a lot of bad misses, rush shots by the uh, opponent. We can't expect the Warriors to kind of snap or buckle or go into any kind of isolation mode. They're just too good. They've been here way too many times in these playoffs. Um, So that's not the expectation. But what you got to hope for is that defensively they can force some more of those issues. And that's how you're going to create your offense. You're going to get the confidence going, Preston. I think that's so crucial for Drew Holiday. Get him going early. Get him some early hoops. Get he's he's got to bring his swag. I didn't. I mean, did you guys see him pointing at anybody in game one? I certainly didn't. All right, let's wrap it up here. Thank you guys so much for your time. Uh, don't go too far. We've got a terrific guest coming up next. Cranjus uh, basket make basketball. Excuse me, breaking down the analytics of what the Warriors did to stop the Pelicans and just how they took advantage of them on both ends of the floor and what adjustments they might potentially make going into Game Two. That's going to be available on iTunes just an hour after this podcast, and it's going to be posted on Twitter tomorrow morning. And if you do make it to iTunes before then to check out our interview with Cranjus, just take a moment and rate us five stars while you're there for now i'm preston ellis ali uh anything you want to plug before game two no i'm just going to get a preview up later on tonight and then uh we're also going to of course touch on that demarcus cousins topic of whether the pelicans should resign him or not oh yeah we had another question about that well uh, i want to apologize to uh i think it was solomon he said how different do you think the game would have been had uh boogie cousins play we'll we'll cover that one in the next podcast with Cranjus. uh let's let's go over to david grubb of course follow him at dm grubb and at crescent city sports he's got a great article recapping game one up right now anything from you sir i'm i'm pretty much working on the same thing uh preview for tomorrow's game and that should be up either tonight or early tomorrow All right. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, Hopefully things will turn out a bit rosier after game two. And if not, hey, you know what they say, uh, series doesn't start until you lose one at home. So at least we've got that going for us. For now, let's go Pels. hope you've enjoyed listening to the bird calls on otg and nothing but net here on dash radio if you like what you're hearing please take a moment to rate us on itunes retweet share with your friends and most importantly subscribe today let's consider the secret life of the innermost nesting doll living most of her life in the dark inside the other nesting dolls she has plenty of time to think if she could sadly she has no brain however When an innermost nesting doll hears that Geico not only saves people money, but also has been providing great service for over 75 years, she thinks it's obvious you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. Pity the innermost nesting doll and her lot in life. Geico presents, yikes, another voicemail from your roommate. Sup, roomie? Hey, a pipe burst in the basement. It's completely flooded. Anyway, I called for someone to fix it, but in the meantime, I was thinking we could finally have that indoor pool party we've always wanted. I got some cool swan floaty things already going. Could you pick up some chips on your way home? Later. The GEICO Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected. Like if your roommate isn't the brightest pool float in the flooded basement. Visit GEICO.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. 
Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.